0: When I was in junior high school riding the bus was probably the most torturous thing that ha- I had to do in my day. The bus ride to school was literally 35 minutes. The bus ride home from school was an hour and 15 minutes because we had to drop all the little kids, it was just like a mess. And so You know, whenever my mom and dad would come into town to go shopping and get groceries and do business and and all the stuff they had to do at the county seat, you know, at the courthouse and all that stuff, they would swing by the school on their way home and pick um, us boys up from junior high school. And that was a glorious day because instead of having the hour and 15-minute ride on the bus we got to go home in like 25 minutes with my dad and my mom. And so it wasn't real uncommon for my parents to show up at the parking lot of the school. I mean, when we'd come out and be waiting for the bus to show up, we'd always look at the parking lot to see if they were there, because if they were there, it was like, yeah, no bus ride. And so this particular day, um, my parents were sitting in the parking lot, and we were pretty excited about it. So we went and piled in the back seat, you know, the back seat where Thumper would roam. He wasn't there that day. But uh, as we were driving, you know, we got in, and, and as kids do, they were talking about all the stuff that happened that day at school, and, you know, I think that might have been the day that my pant leg caught on fire in Metal Shop, and, you know, I had to put it out in a bucket of water and kind of things like that. So anyway, we were doing that little talk, but... As all the stuff got off of our chests and we were uh, riding home, my dad asked this question, and he said, hey, did one of you boys take the money off of mom's dresser this morning? Now, let me explain this a little bit. There are two things you need to know. First of all, our, our house was right across the driveway from the church. And so the adult Sunday school class would meet in our in our kitchen, around the table. They'd have coffee and do their their Sunday school lesson in our house. And so a lot of times the offering from Sunday school would be collected and they would put it on my mom's dresser and then it would be added into the rest of the Sunday school offering later on. The second thing you need to know is that we had a family of seven who had one bathroom. So if you didn't need the sink or the porcelain throne then you were required to go and find a mirror somewhere else to pretty yourself up. And that mirror was on my mom's dresser in her bedroom. And so um, when my dad said, did any of you boys take the money off the dresser? It was like, oh. And of course, um, me having an addiction to sugar would take every opportunity to buy sugary things at school as often as I could. So, like, you know, a 12-ounce bottle of Pepsi was like 25 cents. A chocolate bar was 15 cents. Ice cream sandwich was like 30 cents. And so, you know, um, $2.75 would go a long ways. And so when I'm standing at my mom's dresser, combing my hair, I I had this thing on my head, back when I was younger, it was called a cowlick. And it was right here, and it stood up like this. Let me just say something to you. Never curse something God's given to you because he might take it away. (laughs) So I'm standing there trying to mess with this stupid cowlick and trying to get my hair, and it's just like, I don't know, I tried everything. I tried, uh, my mom had this stuff called Dippity-Doo, You know, hair product. Uh, I even one time thought, I took my dad's deodorant and rubbed it up there. (laughs) Trying to get that thing to do something. It had a mind of its own. So anyway, I'm standing there cursing my cowlick and I look down and I see the money and it was like this. Right in my pocket. So then, we're driving along and here's the question. Did any of you boys take the money off of mom's dresser? Well, I'm the first one with a definitive, nope, not me. I didn't do that. And of course, my two brothers, Blight and John, they're going like, no, uh-uh. My dad, so then there was silence for a little while. Then my dad throws it in. He goes, well, I just want you to know, whoever took that money, that that was Sunday school money, you stole money from Jesus. <laughs> he threw the Jesus card down. <laughs> I was unmoved. I was going like, I think Jesus wanted me to have that money or he wouldn't have put it there. And so again, my brothers go, nope, nope. And I go like, "Mm, nope, uh uh-uh. Silence. Then my dad says, well, if whoever stole that money doesn't confess, the thing that's going to happen is I'm going to punish all three of you boys. I will spank you. Seventh, eighth, and ninth grade boys being spanked by their dad. It wasn't with a ruler, I'm telling you right now. It was more like a baseball bat. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, so the brothers are going to get a whooping too? You know what? They've probably done something that they deserved one for and they didn't get. So I don't even care. Matter of fact, you know, when you're getting punished, it, it always seems to be a little bit better when others are getting punished with you. It's, it's a community thing. We're going to share in this together. And so I was like, yeah, no, uh-uh. That's, that. that. Of all the things he said, that did not faze me. That was more like, yeah, you boys are going to get it, along with me. What I didn't count on was this little thing called the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And he started to drill in right here. And I'm, you know, as much as I'm determined to go like, I'm not, I'm not giving this up. I am not confessing my sin. It seemed like an eternity. It might have been five minutes, but when you're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, five minutes seems like forever. And so, finally, I couldn't stand it anymore—just this, this thing that the Spirit of God was doing inside of me, bringing this unrest. So I finally blurted out, "Okay, I stole the money." And as soon as I confessed, there was this weight that just fell off my shoulders. I was like free. That lasted for about two nanoseconds because then my dad says, huh, so you stole the money. What would you do with the money? Remember, I was going to use this money all week long because I could, I could dole it out and buy stuff all week long. But you know what happens to a kid who never has money and now he has $2.75 and he's got friends? I'm going to buy you something. What do you want? You name it, I'll get you something. I spent all of it in one day on my friends and on myself, my sweet tooth. So I told my dad, I said, I spent it all. And he goes, well, he says, you're in in big trouble for stealing. You're going to get punished for stealing. You're going to get punished worse for lying. And then you're going to pay the money back. But you're not just going to pay $2.75 back. You're going to pay four times that amount because that's the biblical thing to do. Who wants to have a dad as a preacher when he puts that on you? That was a lot of money. I started just weeping. Just started crying. You know what my brother said to me? How could you? Stealing from Jesus. They didn't care if I stole from Jesus. They were just trying to get me into more trouble. So... The thing that I needed the most at that moment was to experience forgiveness. I experienced it from God and from my dad. I still suffered the consequences of my sin. I still had to deal with the punishment that came my way, and it was not pleasant. But I was forgiven, my burden was lifted, and I was in right standing with both my father and my dad. That's what forgiveness does. And in this teaching that Jesus is, is giving called the Sermon on the Mount, to those people that are listening to it, he's giving them snapshots of life about how to really do life. And last, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the, the prayer that Jesus, the model prayer that Jesus gave. And right in the middle of that model prayer, he taught us to say this, to forgive us as we forgive others. Now it sounds like when you hear that, what it sounds like is is that, that in order for us to know the forgiveness of God, we have to be able and willing to forgive other people. It almost sounds like our salvation is tied to our ability to forgive other people. But that's not what Jesus was saying. That is not what Jesus was bringing to the foreground when he said, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have a debt against us. That's not what he's saying. Because matter of fact, let me me give you a few passages of scripture just uh, as a reminder about where our salvation comes from and where we get our reconciliation and our redemption. They're all dependent upon Jesus. It's not anything that we do. We bring no merit to this whatsoever. It's all by the goodness and grace of God. Matter of fact, that's what it says in Ephesians 2. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. Did you get that? You got nothing to do with it. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. See, if, it was, if our salvation was linked to our ability to forgive other people, we could go to God and we could go like, you have to save me because I forgave these people. Look what I did. Look how awesome I am. Look how great of a person I am at being able to forgive these people who have been horrible, who have done horrible things to me. I've done that. Now, God, you're obligated to save me. You're obligated to give me right standing in the kingdom of God. Jesus is going, that's not it at all. You've totally missed the mark if that's what you think it is, because it's only by the grace of God that we know the forgiveness of sin. Not only that, in Romans 10, 9 and 10, the apostle said this, but if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Do you see words, what that's all tied to? Jesus. You don't confess in yourself. You don't, you don't believe in yourself. I mean, there's a lot of people that say, well, you just need to have self-belief because that'll make it all better. Well, that's going to get you nothing but heartburn. That's just horrible. And so what we look at is we look at the whole thing. Our salvation is predicated upon one thing and one thing alone. The fact that Jesus went to the cross and paid a debt that none of us could pay for ourselves. We have this enormous debt that we all carry, that we all put into, and yet it is only by Jesus, it is only by His spilt blood on the cross that we find redemption, that we find salvation. And then it's when we come and we actually confess those words to God, when we say with our mouth, that Jesus is Lord, when we believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, that's how we're saved. I just Look, if you've never done that, I don't know all of your heart condition here today. I don't know where you stand with Jesus. I don't know if you've ever made that confession. But I'm going to tell you, you just take that verse and you said, yeah, you know what, God? I do believe that Jesus is Lord. I believe that with all my heart. And I do believe, God, that you raised him from the dead. On that declaration, you will be saved. So do that today if you've never done it. Don't put it off. The other thing that Jesus said, and this is back at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we call it the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, 9, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God, sons slash daughters of God. And so when we take a look at all these things that Jesus teaches us, when it comes to forgiveness, our forgiveness and forgiving other people, there's something else that Jesus has in mind about that. Matter of fact, on a number of occasions, Jesus reiterates our high calling that he's given to us to do the things that we need to do to make things right with other people, to extend forgiveness and to live a life that is so much different from Those who were without Jesus. Guess what the people who walk in this world that don't know Jesus, have never experienced the fullness of forgiveness from Jesus. Do you know what they do? They walk around and they, they make definitive statements. You are such a horrible person. I will never forgive you. I will never, ever, in my entire life, ever forgive you. And then on that unforgiving heart, they, they pack into it resentment, bitterness, anger, all kinds of horrible things that they pack into that. But here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So there's this whole thing that Jesus is talking about that is in regards to us coming into this place where we're going to come and worship. We make this, in Romans 12, it talks about that we are a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable unto God. That's who we are. And so you come into this place to worship God, and all of a sudden God's drilling in right here on you, and you remember that person, what God literally is telling you is leave your Bible on your seat so you don't lose your spot, get up, go get in your car and go and make things right, then come back and worship. In Matthew, <clears throat> excuse me, Matthew 18 Is, is this story I'm going to get to. But the thing that leads up to the story is young Peter. You know, you know Pete, right? He's the guy that sticks his foot in his mouth all the time. I mean, I don't think he... he it's a miracle what God did to him and through him at the, resurrect, at the ascension of Jesus into heaven. When the Holy Spirit came on Peter, totally transformed his life. He went from being this, this nincompoop to being the leader of the church. Phenomenal. Read the story. It's great. But before that happened, Pete still got this itching to say something to try and make himself look really good. And in Matthew 18, um, Peter came to Jesus and he said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to Peter, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. The context of that isn't like, this is in one day. You know, We're talking about in one day, and the reason why Peter... Do you ever know why Peter said seven times? Remember, Jesus said that, that our, our religion had to be better, our relationship with God had to be better than that of the Pharisees and this, the, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, all these religious leaders who thought that they were really awesome because they had this thing going on with God, they literally would say, you know what? Three times. I forgave my brother three times. Look how great I am. And so Peter's going like, one-upmanship on these guys. He's going to go, I'm better than they are. Look, Jesus, I'm saying seven times I should forgive my brother. And this is on one, one issue. So if he lied to you, and then he lied to you, and he lied to you, and he lied to you, and he lied, lied It's just on lying, Peter's going like, if he lies to me seven times, I'll forgive him seven times. Look how good I am. And Jesus says, Peter, it's 77 times you forgive him for lying in one day. And Pete's like, oh. So then Jesus goes on to tell this, (coughs) excuse me, this story in Matthew 18 about the unrepentant servant. And, And there's this So in the story, there's this, this king who owns a lot of everything everywhere. He's probably the wealthiest man on earth, and he has these guys that work with him and for him, and he's a generous man, and he loans out money to the people that work for him. But sometimes those people would embezzle money from him. And so then all of a sudden, it became apparent that this one guy had this Huge outstanding debt. Matter of fact, it was such a a large sum of money, he would never be able to repay it in an entire lifetime. So we're talking about like, if you were thinking in today's terms, we're talking about billions of dollars that this guy would never be able to repay the king. And so the king calls all these guys up and he says, it's time for you to settle your account with me. You need to pay me everything that you owe me. All the money that you have taken all the money that I have given to you, the money that you've even stolen from me because we have a record of that, you can't get away from it, you are going to give an account for that money right now and you're going to pay me right now every red cent. Well, the the, the servant goes like, in his mind, he's like, I, I can't do this. There's no way I will ever be able to pay this back. So he does the only thing he knows to do. And he falls on his knees and he begs for mercy from the king and says, look, I can't pay this back. I'll never be able to pay this back. But I'm asking because you are such a gracious and merciful king that you would just forgive me of my debt. All the rest of the servants standing around are going like, that's a good one. The amount of money you owe him, he'll never forgive that debt. And then all of a sudden, and the king did what nobody expected him to do, and that was for him to look at this man and say, look, you owe me more than you could ever pay back. I am going to forgive your entire debt. And the guy got up, and he felt the weight of the world fall off of his shoulders. Life was good, and he went walking out, and he's rejoicing in the fact that he doesn't have to pay anything back, and his life is going to be so good. But as he's walking out, he looks and he sees one of his, his co-workers who was recently hired, and, and that co-worker asked if his, this friend, friend would be able to loan him $15. Because he just started a job, he needed to buy some groceries, he didn't have the money, and the, so this, this guy who... Need, you know, had loaned out the $15, found this man, and he says, you're going to pay me everything you owe me right now, the $15. And he says, I don't have the $15. But if you can wait until payday, which is like in three days, I will pay you $15. I just don't have it with me right now. He says, no, you know what? You owe me. You owe me $15. And if you don't pay it to me right now, I'm going to have you taken into, in, into custody until you can pay me the money. He says, well, I don't have it. And so he says, well, too bad for you. And so he has him thrown in jail until he can pay all the money back. But all the rest of the servants are looking at this guy and they're going like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? $15? You're going to throw this guy into jail over $15? When you've been given, forgiven such a huge sum of money. And so they go and tell the king, they go, you know the guy you forgave billions of dollars? Yep. He just had one of his fellow co-workers thrown in jail for $15. King says, bring him in here. Now the king's furious. The king is absolutely angry, and he says, you know what? Because you don't know how to show mercy to someone who owes you far less than what you ever owed me. And since you didn't really get the gift of mercy that I gave to you, the gift of grace that I gave to you, that you should be extending to someone else. Because you didn't get it, now you're going to be held accountable for every dime that you owe me. And you're going to go to jail. All your possessions are going to be sold. Your wife and your children, they're going to be sold into slavery. And I'm going to start recouping my money from everything you own, your house, your land, everything is going to become mine and you're going to jail. And so the wicked servant was thrown into the dungeon. Now, in this story, Jesus told about forgiveness. It's not a subtle story. But just in case anybody missed the meaning of it, Jesus spells it out in verse 35. He says, So also my Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Forgiveness is a pretty big deal to Jesus. And I want to pause right here because this story is, is a story about the human race, the human condition. This is where Jesus says that there's a God who lavishly is generous and painstakingly just, and that the human beings have all accumulated a mountain of moral debt before Him. You and I add to this all of the time. Every time you're less than honest, every time you fudge an expense account, Every time you're unloving to a 12-year-old. Every time you shouldn't have made a cutting remark, but you did. Every time you should have spoken in love, but you did not. Every time you gossiped or were um, not grateful or closed your eyes to the poor. Every nursed grudge that you have. Every selfish act. Every self-righteous attitude. Every grape you stole from the produce section every little lie that you ever told, every failure to be generous with the finances God has blessed you with, every blind eye you have ever turned toward unbiblical morality, every moment of spiritual sloth, all of these adding up to a mountain of moral debt. Every human being is in the same boat. I'm a pastor. I've devoted my life to teaching about spiritual growth. It took me about 30 seconds to compile this list of these items. Every item on that list. Do you know why it took me only 30 seconds? Because I've done every one of those things. I'm guilty of all those things that, have, that I just named. And in my blindness, there are things I didn't name. And all of these things. One day, Jesus took all of these things. The things that I know I did. And the things I know that I can't remember that I did. And he went to the cross, and he took pity on me, and he forgave me of my entire debt. God had compassion, and he canceled my debt. He forgave my sin, and he set me free. But it doesn't stop there. As we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, we've looked and we've seen this prayer And right in the middle of it, Jesus taught us to pray and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. A guy by by the name of Charles Williams wrote, no word in the English language carries a greater possibility of terror than the little word as in this phrase. Jesus is so serious about this that he adds a little postscript to the Lord's Prayer. Now, There are people who study things like this. And they say that when you send out an email to somebody, and it doesn't matter how long it is, at the end of that email, you put a PS, postscript, PS, at the end of it, that more people, when they read an email, will remember and catch hold of the P.S., than they will anything else in the rest of that. So if you're sending out an email that you want to make sure they get the point, you put P.S., they'll get the time, they'll get the date, they'll get the message, they'll get everything, because that's where their attention goes to. So here, at the end of this prayer that Jesus gives to us, a prayer that that has been prayed more in the human history over the last 2,000 years than any other prayer, he puts a P.S., and it goes like this. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, that kind of may, maybe looks a little severe to us. You might be thinking, well, God is being just a little bit too strict here. And actually, there are some people who think God has to forgive me if I ask him. That's his job. But what Jesus is saying here is now God could forgive you, but he might be withholding his forgiveness to motivate you to be more forgiving. Jesus is commenting on the nature of forgiveness and the human condition. See, there's a vast chasm uh, between wanting to be forgiven versus wanting. Not to get caught, to keep out of trouble. Here's, here's kind of the way it works. If, if I've done something to offend you, or I've done, committed some sin against you, and I want you to forgive me, it means I agree with you about the thing that I've done wrong. In order for me to say, yep, you know what, um, I need to be forgiven of this, I am basically agreeing with you that what I have done was wrong. If I don't think I've done something wrong, then I really don't want to be forgiven. If I want to be forgiven, it's not just to avoid trouble. It means I recognize I've done something wrong, and I don't want to be that kind of person anymore. And so I want to change the kind of guy I am, and so I'm going to ask you to forgive me for my bad behavior. Now, here's, here's the other side of that coin. Sometimes what we don't want is we don't want to be forgiven, even if we've done something wrong, even if we've sinned against somebody else, even if we've done something that's horrible, we don't want someone to come to us and say, hey, you know what, this is what you need to do, and, and you need to ask for forgiveness. And we go, no, I, I don't want a forgiver in my life. I want an enabler in my life. I want someone who's going to continue to enable me in bad behavior, in sinful behavior, and not call me accountable to any of my bad behavior. And so Jesus is saying that if we really want to be forgiven with God, forgiven by God, I have to agree with him that I've done wrong. I want to be the kind of person who wouldn't do that kind of stuff anymore. Forgiveness is always a gift of grace. Receiving forgiveness usually involves a lot of work, and that's called repentance. I think that repentance is one of the greatest gifts that the Spirit of God gives to us. Because back to my story when I was a kid, I was in such deep turmoil about my sin and the things that I had done wrong, it wasn't that I stole money from Jesus. It was that I stole. It wouldn't have meant, mattered if it would have been five cents or $500. I was stealing. And the Spirit of God was convicting. And so because I wanted to get over that, I had to step in and embrace this gift of repentance. And that gift of Repentance is enabled by grace, and it's a gift. So if I cling to resentment towards other people, grudging or grudge-holding, bitterness, retaliation, passive-aggressive behavior, I don't want to be forgiven. I don't want to repent. I don't want to become a new creature and live in the reality of the kingdom from up there coming down here. but God will not force me to forgive. He'll make you miserable, but he's not going to put you in a headlock and say, do it. Um, there's other, another group of people that, that are kind of involved with this. I call them um, minimalists. Now, my, my oldest daughter, she's been reading books on becoming a minimalist. And my oldest son, he's really interested in becoming a minimalist. And I just say, you guys are a bunch of hippies. That's all you are. (laughs) Knock it off. That's stupid. And then they call me hater. (laughs) But what I'm talking about here, when I say minimalist, there are people who take a look at their sin, their wrongdoing, and they minimize their sin. It's not that big of a deal. I didn't mean anything by it. If you were hurt by what I said, it's not my fault. I can't help that you're really, you know, oversensitive. And so they minimize all the effects of their issues in their life. They just don't want to look like they're weak. They don't want to look like they've ever done anything wrong. They don't want to have to confess that they have They've misled people, that they've lied to people, that they haven't told the truth, that they've done something wrong. They don't want to have to be able to do to say that they've done that because they don't want to look weak to other people. They don't want to have to admit that they were wrong. And there are people like that all over the place. And unfortunately, there's a bunch of them hanging out in the churches too. They just don't want to do it. But understand this. It is, and I got this from John Ortberg. He says it's it's psychologically impossible for us to know God's tender-hearted pity towards us and remain hard-hearted toward others. This is critically important about the human condition. It is sometimes called, and this is what I picked up from John Ortberg, the unity of spiritual orientation. In other words, you cannot have one posture towards God and a, another posture towards people. It's not that you shouldn't. It's impossible because you are one person with one character. And we see this in scripture all over the place and I'll just give you one ad, example out of First John. It says, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he can see cannot love God who he can't see. Ouch! Don't like that one. I'm going to redact that out of my Bible. Here's the thing, we're each whole beings. My true character pervades everything I do. I read read something not too long ago, and I'm sure you've probably heard about it, and it was a case of sexual harassment. In our country, this is like over Alaska, who hasn't been in the case of sexual harassment in public eye recently. And and the guilty celebrity's apology was this. I apologize. Although I don't remember doing it, that action does not reflect who I am. Uh, Guess what? It really does reflect who you are. Because our actions always I'm the one who said that. I'm the one who did that. My true character is revealed not by the values that I publicly profess to hold, but precisely by what I say and by what I do. This is the truth about us. This is the unity of the spirit of orientation. Jesus came into the world that was governed by the law of retaliation. Back when Jesus came in, this was the way they operated. They said, you help me, I'll help you. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. You punch me, I'll punch you in the face. That's that is what, that's the human nature. That's what we do. I hate to admit this, that's me. I mean, when a little kid comes by and I walk by them and they give me a little shot, I put them through the wall. They trip me, I knock them on their head. Well, I mean, that's the only people I can do that to. But that's, that's who we are. Here's what the psalmist says. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. James also writes this. The Lord is full of pity and compassion. Later on, he writes, Finally, be of one mind, having compassion, One uh, compassion for one another, love as brethren, be pitiful and courteous. Now, that's the key word back in this story that I told you in Matthew 18, that Jesus told about the unmerciful servant. And, And it says this in Matthew 18, 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. Now, that word pity isn't a word that we like to use very much. We just don't use it much anymore. Mercy, we're okay with that. Compassion, yeah, that's a good one. Not pity. Pity offends my pride. I don't want your pity. We say that. The truth is, I'm a pitiable person. If if my family is going to love me, it's not based on my strength of character. They're going to have pity on me. They must see my neediness, my weakness, and give and be given mercy from God for me. That's, what, that's when we know we're loving deeply as Jesus called us to do. Now, I don't know how many of you have, you know, sometimes movies mess things up. Um, but there's these really great books written by a guy, by the name, this little unknown author named uh, J.R. Tolkien. And he wrote these books called The Lord of the Rings. And if you've read The Lord of the Rings, you know that pity is the key to the story. Because early on, the little hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, he had gotten the ring of power. It was actually an evil ring of power. And he puts it on, he becomes invisible. And he has to get past Gollum, who used to have the ring but lost it, to escape the cave where he, Bilbo, is trapped. Gollum wants to kill Bilbo, but cannot see him. And um, Tolkien writes of Bilbo, he must stab the foul thing, put its eyes out and kill it. Then something happens, a sudden understanding, a pity mixed with horror, welled up in Bilbo's heart, a glimpse of endless unmarked days without light or hope. Bilbo has pity for Gollum. Now he doesn't forgive him exactly, Gollum won't repent, but Bilbo refuses to repay evil for evil. He repays evil with good. Much later on, Frodo, Bilbo's nephew, has to deal with Gollum. And Frodo says to the wizard Gandalf, it's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him. And Gandalf says, pity? It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Be sure that he he took so little hurt from this evil, wicked ring because he began his own ownership of the ring with pity. In the end, when Frodo's not strong enough, it is through this Gollum that the ring is destroyed. It was pity that saved the world. We all think we're going to be brilliant. We're going to be strong, beautiful. But in the end, we're loved and accepted On the basis of pity from God and from others, we learn to live in forgiveness. On the cross, it was pity that moved the master to pay our debt. On the cross, it was pity that saves the world. Now you might wonder, where can I go to find a place that's filled with pitiful sinners who will wrong you and hurt you so you can actually practice forgiveness? Just take a look around. Go no further. Come back next week. We'll give you lots of opportunity to practice forgiveness. This is the place where everybody is welcomed. This is the place where we welcome the saints and the sinners, the righteous and the unrighteous, the godly and the ungodly. John Ortberg also came up with the new liturgy. For all churches, the desire to be real, and it goes like this. My pity be upon your pitiful self. And then you would respond with, and also with you. (laughs) I really don't think it's going to get a lot of traction, just saying. But I do want you to know that everybody is welcomed here. Nobody's perfect. And anything, especially God's forgiveness for unpayable debt, is possible. So we remember this. This is how my Heavenly Father treated each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. Forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. Now, listen, I know this about all of us in here. We all have debtors. I know you do. Maybe your debtor is your mom and dad in some awful way. Maybe it's your husband or your wife for some terrible behavior. Maybe it's a son or a daughter. Maybe it's somebody at work who has wounded you. Maybe it's a fellow debtor. Maybe it's somebody in this room. The question is, what will you choose? Will you choose grace? And by the way, that doesn't mean you excuse or tolerate bad behavior, sinful behavior, wrongdoing. And it may not even mean that you're being able to get to the place of being reconciled completely. Because if someone sins against you and refuses to acknowledge the truth, refuses to repent, refuses to agree with you that they've done something wrong, you may not be able to build a relationship with them. Full forgiveness involves a restored relationship. And we can start with forgiving without them coming and asking for it. We can start there. You give up the right to hurt the other person back. You wish them well before God, and God will help you do this. The stakes are absolutely high. They are so high. And forgive us our debts as, as. It happens every day. That is the story of our pitiless world. But there is another way. And let me say this about the unforgiving spirit. If you hold resentment and unforgiveness in your heart towards anyone, what you are in effect doing is you are drinking or eating the rat poison trying to kill the other person. You are trying to kill them by holding on to your unforgiveness. And you know what? They don't care. They're not aware. And all you're doing is hurting yourself. A scholar by the name of Walter Wink wrote about two peacemakers who visited with Polish Christians after the Second World War and asked them, would you be willing to meet with some Christians from West Germany because they want to ask They want to ask forgiveness for what Germany did during the war. They want to begin a new relationship with you. Would you meet with them? There was silence. What you're asking is impossible. Every stone of Warsaw is soaked with Polish blood they spilled. We can't forgive. They finished the conversation. And they decided to close by saying the Lord's Prayer together. They got to these words, and forgive us our debts as we. Everybody stopped praying. There was silence in the room. There was great distress. One of these Polish Christians said, I can no longer pray this prayer or call myself Christian if I don't forgive. Humanly speaking, I can't do it. But God will give us the strength. 18 months later, Polish Christians and German Christians met in Vienna and and eventually established a friendship that lasted for the rest of their lives. Now listen, I get it. I understand this. I know forgiving is very complex. It's complicated. It goes deep. There is a process. And in that process, it may take weeks or months or years. It could even take decades. And I get it. But I wonder, over the last 2,000 years, how many marriages might have changed, how many families, how many friendships, how many churches, how many lives, if when the Lord's Prayer was prayed, they stopped at that line. And forgive us our debts as we... This morning, we've been talking about the sin of other people on our lives. We've been talking about our sin on other people's lives. And I don't think it would be right for us just to say, Thank you, God, for a great message, although that would be appropriate. Thank you, God, for such a great prayer. Thank you, God, for such a great reminder. But what I want to do this morning, what I really believe God's calling us to do is for us to take a moment of reflection. Let the Holy Spirit do His work in our lives and to think about that little word, as. Forgive us our debt, as. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to ask God, to reveal to you right now that person where forgiveness is needed? Is there a a grudge that needs to be dealt with? Is there bitterness that needs to be let go of? Is there resentment that needs to be destroyed? Where's the pity? Where's the grace? Where's the work of the Spirit of God in your heart? Where's the conviction? So let's just take a couple, of, just a couple of minutes and you talk to the Lord. You ask the Spirit of God to do His work where you need to take care of business and find forgiveness. For some of you, it may be simply seeking the forgiveness of, your, of God. You've never done that. I have a mountain of debt that has not been forgiven and you just ask God to forgive your debt. Let's pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, in Lander, in Wind River Community Church, in our homes, as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For you alone are worthy of our praise, Father. You alone are the one who can redeem. You alone are the one who forgives. You alone are the one who saves. You alone are the one who can make all things new. You are the one who restores broken relationships. You are the one who mends marriages. You are the one who binds up the wounds of a broken family. You, God, you are worthy. You, God, you are the one. And so we ask today that you would come into our hearts, remind us of the great work that you've done already for us on our behalf, forgiving our debt, that is immense against you, and you have forgiven every debt that we have ever owed against you. Now we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us strength to forgive the the meager debt that someone has against us, that we would extend the love of Jesus. We would extend the grace that you have so lavishly poured out on us that we would extend the forgiveness, that we would find peace in our hearts, we'd find peace in our families, we'd find peace in our marriages, we'd find peace in our minds, and that we would be renewed with a right spirit. Let the meditation of our heart and the words of our mouth be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our salvation. Work your will in our lives today, we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.